Lecture three of Pioneers of Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Rodstrom. Pioneers of Science by Sir Oliver Lodge. Lecture three. Kepler and the Laws of Planetary Motion. Summary of Facts for Lecture 3 Life and Work of Kepler Kepler was born in December 1571 at Weil in Württemberg. Father an officer in the Duke's army, mother something of a virago, both very poor. Kepler was utilized as a tavern potboy, but ultimately sent to a charity school and thence to the University of Tübingen. Health extremely delicate. He was liable to violent attacks all his life, studied mathematics, and accepted an astronomical lectureship at Graz at the first post which offered, endeavored to discover some connection between the number of the planets, their times of revolution, and their distances from the sun, ultimately hit upon his fanciful regular solid hypothesis, and published his first book in 1597. In 1599 was invited by Tycho to Prague, and there appointed imperial mathematician, at a handsome but seldom paid salary. Observed the new star of 1604. Endeavored to find the law of refraction of light from Vitellio's measurements, but failed. Analyzed Tycho's observations to find the true law of motion of Mars. After incredible labor, through innumerable wrong guesses, and six years of almost incessant calculation, he at length emerged in his two laws, discoveries which swept away all epicycles, deference, equants, and other remnants of the Greek system, and ushered in the dawn of modern astronomy. Law 1. Planets move in ellipses with the sun in one focus. Law 2. The radius vector or line joining sun and planet, sweeps out equal areas in equal times. Published his second book containing these laws in 1609, death of Rudolph in 1612, and subsequent increased misery and misfortune of Kepler. Ultimately discovered the connection between the times and distances of the planets for which he had been groping all his mature life, and announced it in 1618. Law 3. The square of the time of revolution, or year of each planet, is proportional to the cube of its mean distance from the sun. The book in which this law was published, On Celestial Harmonies, was dedicated to James of England. In 1620, had to intervene to protect his mother from being tortured for witchcraft. Accepted a professorship at Linz published the Rudolphine Tables in 1627, embodying Tycho's observations and his own theory, made a last effort to overcome his poverty by getting the arrears of his salary paid at Prague, but was unsuccessful, and, contracting brain fever on the journey, died in November 1630, aged 59. A man of keen imagination, indomitable perseverance, and uncompromising love of truth, Kepler overcame ill health, poverty, and misfortune, 
and placed himself in the very highest rank of scientific men. His laws, so extraordinarily discovered, introduced order and simplicity into what else would have been a chaos of detailed observations, and they served as a secure basis for the splendid erection made on them by Newton. Seven planets of the Ptolemaic system, Moon, Mercury, Venus, Sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. Six planets of the Copernican system, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. The five regular solids in appropriate order, octahedron, icosahedron, dodecahedron, tetrahedron, cube. Table illustrating Kepler's third law. Planet. Mercury. Mean distance from Sun. D. 0.3871. Length of year. T. 0.24084. Cube of the distance. D cubed. 0.05801. Square of the time. T squared. 0.05801. Planet. Venus. Mean distance from Sun. D. Point seven two three three length of year T point six one five one nine cube of the distance D cubed point three seven eight four five square of the time T squared point three seven eight four six planet Earth mean distance from Sun D one length of year T one cube of the distance D cubed one Square of the time, T squared, 1. Planet, Mars, mean distance from Sun, 1.5237. Length of year, T, 1.8808. Cube of the distance, D cubed, 3.5375. Square of the time, T squared, 3.5375. Planet, Jupiter, Mean distance from Sun, D, 5.2028. Length of year, T, 11.862. Cube of the distance, D cubed, 140.83. Square of the time, T squared, 140.70. Planet, Saturn. Mean distance from Sun, D, 9.5388. Length of year, T, 29.457. Cube of the distance, D cubed, 867.92, square of the time, T squared, 867.70. The length of the Earth's year is 365.256 days. Its mean distance from the Sun, taken above as unity, is 92 million miles. Lecture 3, Kepler and the Laws of Planetary Motion it is difficult to imagine a stronger contrast between two men engaged in the same branch of science than exists between Tycho Brahe, the subject of last lecture, and Kepler, our subject on the present occasion. The one, rich, noble, vigorous, passionate, strong in mechanical ingenuity and experimental skill, but not above the average in theoretical and mathematical power. The other, poor, sickly, devoid of experimental gifts, and unfitted by nature for accurate observation, but strong almost beyond competition in speculative subtlety and innate mathematical perception.
the one is the complement of the other, and from the fact of their following each other so closely arose the most surprising benefits to science. The outward life of Kepler is to a large extent a mere record of poverty and misfortune. I shall only sketch in its broad features so that we may have more time to attend to his work. He was born, so his biographer assures us, in longitude 29 degrees 7 minutes, latitude 48 degrees 54 minutes, on the 21st of December, 1571. His parents seem to have been of fair condition, but by reason, it is said, of his becoming surety for a friend, the father lost all his slender income and was reduced to keeping a tavern. Young John Kepler was thereupon taken from school and employed as pot-boy between the ages of nine and twelve. He was a sickly lad, subject to violent illnesses from the cradle, so that his life was frequently despaired of. Ultimately, he was sent to a monastic school and thence to the University of Tübingen, where he graduated second on the list. Meanwhile, home affairs had gone to rack and ruin. His father abandoned the home and later died abroad. The mother quarreled with all her relations, including her son John, who is therefore glad to get away as soon as possible. All his connection with astronomy up to this time had been the hearing of the Copernican theory expounded in university lectures and defending it in a college debating society. An astronomical lectureship at Graz, happening to offer itself, he was urged to take it and agreed to do so, though stipulating that it should not debar him from some more brilliant profession when there was a chance. For astronomy in those days seems to have ranked as a minor science, like mineralogy or meteorology now. It had little of the special dignity with which the labors of Kepler himself were destined so greatly to aid in endowing it. Well, he speedily became a thorough Copernican, and as he had a most singularly restless and inquisitive mind, full of appreciation of everything relating to number and magnitude, was a born speculator and thinker, just as Mozart was a born musician, or Bitter a born calculator, he was agitated by questions such as these. Why are there exactly six planets? Is there any connection between their orbital distances, or between their orbits and the times of describing them? These things tormented him, and he thought about them day and night. It is characteristic of the spirit of the times, this questioning why there should be six planets. Nowadays, we should simply record the fact and look out for a seventh. Then some occult property of the number six was groped for, such as that it was equal to one plus two plus three, and likewise equal to one times two times three, and so on. Many fine reasons had been given for the seven planets of the Ptolemaic system, but for the six planets of the Copernican system, the reasons were not so cogent. Again, with respect to their successive distances from the sun, some law would seem to regulate their distance, but it was not known. Parenthetically, I may remark that it is not known even now. A crude empirical statement known as Bode's Law is all that has been discovered. Once more, the further the planet, the slower it moved. There seemed to be some law connecting speed and distance.
This also Kepler made continual attempts to discover. One of his ideas concerning the law of the successive distances was based on the inscription of a triangle in a circle. If you inscribe in a circle a large number of equilateral triangles, they envelop another circle bearing a definite ratio to the first. These might do for the orbits of two planets. Then try inscribing and circumscribing squares, hexagons, and other figures, and see if the circles thus defined would correspond to the several planetary orbits. But they would not give any satisfactory result. Brooding over this disappointment, the idea of trying solid figures suddenly strikes him. What have plain figures to do with the celestial orbits, he cries out, inscribe the regular solids. And then, brilliant idea, he remembers that there are but five. Euclid had shown that there could be only five regular solids. The number evidently corresponds to the gaps between the six planets. The reason of there being only six seems to be attained. This coincidence assures him he is on the right track, and with great enthusiasm and hope, he represents the Earth's orbit by a sphere as the norm and measure of all. Round it he circumscribes a dodecahedron, and puts another sphere round that, which is approximately the orbit of Mars. Round that, again, a tetrahedron, the corners of which mark the sphere of the orbit of Jupiter. Round that sphere, again, he places a cube, which roughly gives the orbit of Saturn. On the other hand, he inscribes in the sphere of the Earth's orbit an icosahedron, and inside the sphere, determined by that, an octahedron, which figures he takes to enclose the spheres of Venus and of Mercury, respectively. The imagined discovery is purely fictitious and accidental. First of all, eight planets are now known, and secondly, their real distances agree only very approximately with Kepler's hypothesis. Nevertheless, the idea gave him great delight. He says, The intense pleasure I have received from this discovery can never be told in words. I regretted no more the time wasted. I tired of no labor. I shun no toil of reckoning days and nights spent in calculation, until I could see whether my hypothesis would agree with the orbits of Copernicus, or whether my joy was to vanish into air. He then went on to speculate as to the cause of the planet's motion. The old idea was that they were carried round by angels or celestial intelligences. Kepler tried to establish some propelling force emanating from the sun, like the spokes of a windmill. This first book of his brought him into notice, and served as an introduction to Tycho and to Galileo. Tycho Brahe was at this time at Prague under the patronage of the Emperor Rudolf, and as he was known to have by far the best planetary observations of any man living, Kepler wrote to him to know if he might come and examine them so as to perfect his theory. Tycho immediately replied, Come, not as a stranger, but as a very welcome friend. 
Come and share in my observations with such instruments as I have with me, and as a dearly beloved associate. After this visit, Tycho wrote again, offering him the post of mathematical assistant, which, after hesitation, was accepted. Part of the hesitation Kepler expresses by saying that, for observations, his sight was dull, and for mechanical operations, his hand was awkward. He suffered much from weak eyes, and dare not expose himself to night air. In all this he was, of course, the antipodes of Tycho, but in mathematical skill he was greatly his superior. On his way to Prague he was seized with one of his periodical illnesses, and all his means were exhausted by the time he could set forward again, so that he had to apply for help to Tycho. It is clear indeed that for some time now he subsisted entirely on the bounty of Tycho, and he expresses himself most deeply grateful for all the kindness he received from that noble and distinguished man, the head of the scientific world at that date. To illustrate Tycho's kindness and generosity, I must read you a letter written to him by Kepler. It seems that Kepler, on one of his absences from Prague, driven half-mad with poverty and trouble, fell foul of Tycho, whom he thought to be behaving badly in money matters to him and his family, and wrote him a violent letter full of reproaches and insults. Tycho's secretary replied quietly enough, pointing out the groundlessness and ingratitude of the accusation. Kepler repents instantly and replies, most noble Tycho, these are the words of his letter, how shall I enumerate or rightly estimate your benefits conferred on me? For two months you have liberally and gratuitously maintained me, and my whole family. You have provided for all my wishes. You have done me every possible kindness. You have communicated to me everything you hold most dear. No one, by word or deed, has intentionally injured me in anything. In short, not to your children, your wife, or yourself, have you shown more indulgence than to me. This being so, as I am anxious to put on record, I cannot reflect without consternation that I should have been so given up by God to my own intemperance as to shut my eyes on all these benefits, that, instead of modest and respectful gratitude, I should indulge for three weeks in continual moroseness towards all your family, in headlong passion and the utmost insolence towards yourself, who possess so many claims on my veneration, from your noble family, your extraordinary learning, and distinguished reputation. Whatever I have said or written against the person, the fame, the honor, and the learning of your excellency, or whatever in any other way I have injuriously spoken or written, if they admit no other more favorable interpretation, as to my grief I have spoken and written many things, and more than I can remember, all and everything I recant, and freely and honestly declare and profess to be groundless, false, and incapable of proof.
Tycho accepted the apology thus heartily rendered, and the temporary breach was permanently healed. In 1601, Kepler was appointed imperial mathematician to assist Tycho in his calculations. The Emperor Rudolf did a good piece of work in thus maintaining these two eminent men, but it is quite clear that it was as astrologers that he valued them, and all he cared for in the planetary motions was limited to their supposed effect on his own and his kingdom's destiny. He seems to have been politically a weak and superstitious prince who was letting his kingdom get into hopeless confusion and entangling himself in all matter of political complications. While Bohemia suffered, however, the world has benefited at his hands, and the tables upon which Tycho was now engaged are well called the Rudolphine Tables. These tables of planetary motion Tycho had always regarded as the main work of his life, but he died before they were finished, and on his deathbed he entrusted the completion of them to Kepler, who loyally undertook their charge. The imperial funds were, by this time, however, so taxed by wars and other difficulties that the tables could only be proceeded with very slowly, a staff of calculators being out of the question. In fact, Kepler could not get even his own salary paid. He got orders and promises and drafts on estates for it, but when the time came for them to be honored, they were worthless, and he had no power to enforce his claims. So everything but brooding had to be abandoned as too expensive, and he proceeded to study optics. He gave a very accurate explanation of the action of the human eye, and made many hypotheses, some of them shrewd and close to the mark, concerning the law of refraction of light in dense media. But, though several minor points of interest turned up, nothing of the first magnitude came out of this long research. The true law of refraction was discovered some years after by a Dutch professor, Willebrod Snell. We must now devote a little time to the main work of Kepler's life. All the time he had been at Prague, he had been making a severe study of the motion of the planet Mars, analyzing minutely Tycho's books of observations, in order to find out, if possible, the true theory of his motion. Aristotle had taught that circular motion was the only perfect and natural motion, and that the heavenly bodies therefore necessarily moved in circles. So firmly had this idea become rooted in men's minds that no one ever seems to have contemplated the possibility of its being false or meaningless. When Hipparchus and others found that, as a matter of fact, the planets did not revolve in simple circles, they did not try other curves, as we should at once do now, but they tried combinations of circles, as we saw in Lecture 1. The small circle, carried by a bigger one, was called an epicycle. The carrying circle was called the deferent. If, for any reason, the Earth had to be placed out of the center, the main planetary orbit was called an eccentric, and so on. But, although the planetary paths might be roughly represented by a combination of circles, their speeds could not, 
on the hypothesis of uniform motion in each circle round the earth as a fixed body. Hence was introduced the idea of an equant, i.e., an arbitrary point, not the earth, about which the speed might be uniform. Copernicus, by making the sun the center, had been able to simplify a good deal of this and to abolish the equant. But now that Kepler had the accurate observations of Tycho to refer to, he found immense difficulty in obtaining the true positions of the planets for long together on any such theory. He specially attacked the motion of the planet Mars, because that was sufficiently rapid in its changes for a considerable collection of data to have accumulated with respect to it. He tried all manner of circular orbits for the Earth and for Mars, placing them in all sorts of aspects with respect to the Sun. The problem to be solved was to choose such an orbit and such a law of speed for both the Earth and Mars that a line joining them, produced out to the stars, should always mark correctly the apparent position of Mars as seen from the Earth he had to arrange the size of the orbits that suited best, then the positions of their centers, both being supposed eccentric with respect to the sun. But he could not get any such arrangement to work with uniform motion about the sun. So he reintroduced the equant, and thus had another variable at his disposal. In fact, two, for he had an equant for the earth, and another for Mars, getting a pattern of the kind suggested in figure 29. The equants might divide the line in any arbitrary ratio. All sorts of combinations had to be tried, the relative positions of the Earth and Mars to be worked out for each, and compared with Tycho's recorded observations. It was easy to get them to agree for a short time, but sooner or later, a discrepancy showed itself. I need not say that all these attempts and gropings, thus briefly summarized, entailed enormous labor, and required not only great pertinacity, but a most singularly constituted mind, that could thus continue groping in the dark without a possible ray of theory to illuminate its search. Grope he did, however, with unexampled diligence. At length, he hit upon a point that seemed nearly right. He thought he had found the truth. But no. Before long, the position of the planet, as calculated and as recorded by Tycho, differed by eight minutes of arc, or about one-eighth of a degree. Could the observations be wrong by this small amount? No. He had known Tycho, and knew that he was never wrong eight minutes in an observation. So he set out the whole weary way again, and said that with those eight minutes he would yet find out the law of the universe. He proceeded to see if by making the planet librate, or the plane of its orbit tilt up and down, anything could be done. He was rewarded by finding that at any rate, the plane of the orbit did not tilt up and down, it was fixed, and this was a simplification on Copernicus's theory. 
It is not an absolute fixture, but the changes are very small. At last he thought of giving up the idea of uniform circular motion and of trying varying circular motion, say inversely as its distance from the sun. To simplify calculation, he divided the orbit into triangles and tried if making the triangles equal would do. A great piece of luck, they did beautifully. The rate of description of areas, not arcs, is uniform. Over this discovery he greatly rejoices. He feels as though he had been carrying on a war against the planet and had triumphed. But his gratulation was premature. Before long, fresh little errors appeared and grew in importance. Thus he announces it himself. While thus triumphing over Mars, and preparing for him, as for one already vanquished, tabular prisons and equated eccentric fetters, it is buzzed here and there that the victory is vain, and that the war is raging anew as violently as before. For the enemy left at home a despised captive, has burst all the chains of the equations, and broken forth from the prisons of the tables. Still, a part of the truth had been gained, and was not to be abandoned any more. The law of speed was fixed, that which is now known as his second law. But what about the shape of the orbit? Was it, after all, possible that Aristotle and every philosopher since Aristotle had been wrong, that circular motion was not the perfect and natural motion, but that planets might move in some other closed curve? Suppose he tried an oval. Well, there are a great variety of ovals, and several were tried, with the result that they could be made to answer better than a circle, but still were not right. Now, however, the geometrical and mathematical difficulties of calculations, which before had been tedious and oppressive, threatened to become overwhelming, and it is with a rising sense of despondency that Kepler sees his six years unremitting labor leading deeper and deeper into complication. One most disheartening circumstance appeared, viz., that when he made the circuit oval, his law of equable description of areas broke down. That seemed to require the circular orbit, and yet no circular orbit was quite accurate. While thinking and pondering for weeks and months over this new dilemma, and complication of difficulties, till his brain reeled, an accidental ray of light broke upon him in a way not now intelligible, or barely intelligible. Half the extreme breadth intercepted between the circle and oval was 429 over 100,000 of the radius, and he remembered that the optical inequality of Mars was also about 429 over 100,000. This coincidence, in his own words, woke him out of sleep, 
and for some reason or other impelled him instantly to try making the planet oscillate in the diameter of its epicycle instead of revolve around it a singular idea but copernicus had had a similar one to explain the motions of mercury away he started through his calculations again a long course of work night and day was rewarded by finding that he was now able to hit off the motions better than before but what a singularly complicated motion it was could it be expressed no more simply yes the curve so described by the planet is a comparatively simple one it is a special kind of oval the ellipse strange that he had not thought of it before it was a famous curve for the greek geometers had studied it as one of the sections of a cone but it was not so well known in kepler's time the fact that the planets move in it has raised it to the first importance and it is familiar enough to us now but did it satisfy the law of speed could the rate of description of areas be uniform with it well he tried the ellipse and to his inexpressible delight he found that it did satisfy the condition of equable description of areas if the sun was in one focus so moving the planet in a selected ellipse with the sun in one focus at a speed given by the equable area description its position agreed with tycho's observations within the limits of the error of experiment mars was finally conquered and remains in his prison house to this day the orbit was found in a paroxysm of delight kepler celebrates his victory by a triumphant figure sketched actually on his geometrical diagram the diagram which proves that the law of equable description of areas can hold good with an ellipse the above is a tracing of it such is a crude and bald sketch of the steps by which kepler rose to his great generalizations the two laws which have immortalized his name all the complications of epicycle equant deferent eccentric and the like were swept at once away and an orbit of striking and beautiful properties substituted well might he be called as he was the legislator or law interpreter of the heavens he concludes his book on the motions of mars with a half comic appeal to the emperor to provide him with the sinews of war for an attack on mars relations father jupiter brother mercury and the rest but the death of his unhappy patron in sixteen twelve put an end to all these schemes and reduced kepler to the utmost misery while at prague his salary was in continual arrears and it was with difficulty that he could provide sustenance for his family he had been there eleven years but they had been hard years of poverty and he could leave without regret were it not that he should have to leave tycho's instruments and observations behind him while he was hesitating what best to do and reduced to the verge of despair his wife 
who had long been suffering from low spirits and despondency, and his three children, were taken ill. One of the sons died of smallpox, and the wife eleven days after of low fever and epilepsy. No money could be got at Prague, so after a short time he accepted a professorship at Linz, and withdrew with his two quite young remaining children. He provided for himself now partly by publishing a prophesizing almanac, a sort of Zadkiel arrangement, a thing which he despised, but the support of which he could not afford to do without. He is continually attacking and throwing sarcasm at astrology, but it was the only thing for which people would pay him, and on it, after a fashion, he lived. We do not find that his circumstances were ever prosperous, and though eight thousand crowns were due to him from Bohemia, he could not manage to get them paid. About this time occurred a singular interruption to his work. His old mother, of whose fierce temper something has already been indicated, had been engaged in a lawsuit for some years near their old home in Württemberg. A change of judge having in process of time occurred. The defendant saw his way to turn the tables on the old lady by accusing her of sorcery. She was sent to prison and contemned to the torture with the usual intelligent idea of extracting a voluntary confession. Kepler had to hurry from Linz to interpose. He succeeded in saving her from the torture, but she remained in prison for a year or so. Her spirit, however, was unbroken, for no sooner was she released than she commenced a fresh action against her accuser. But fresh trouble was averted by the death of the poor old dame at the age of nearly eighty. This narration renders the unflagging energy shown by her son in his mathematical wrestlings less surprising. Interspersed with these domestic troubles, and with harassing and unsuccessful attempts to get his rights, he still brooded over his old problem of some possible connection between the distances of the planets from the sun and their times of revolution, i.e. the length of their years. It might well have been that there was no connection, that it was purely imaginary, like his old idea of the law of the successive distances of the planets, and like so many others of the guesses and fancies which he entertained and spent his energies in probing. But fortunately, this time, there was a connection, and he lived to have the joy of discovering it. The connection is this, that if one compares the distance of the different planets from the sun with the length of time they take to go round him, the cube of the respective distances is proportional to the square of the corresponding times. In other words, the ratio of r cubed to t squared for every planet is the same. Or again, the length of a planet's year depends on the 3 over 2 th power of its distance from the sun. Or, once more, the speed of each planet in its orbit is as the inverse square root of its distance from the sun. 
the product of the distance into the square of the speed is the same for each planet. This, however stated, is called Kepler's third law. It welds the planets together and shows them to be one system. His rapture on detecting the law was unbounded, and he breaks out into an exulting rhapsody. What I prophesied two and twenty years ago, as soon as I discovered the five solids among the heavenly orbits, what I firmly believed long before I had seen Ptolemy's harmonies, what I had promised my friends in the title of this book, which I named before I was sure of my discovery, what sixteen years ago I urged as a thing to be sought, that for which I joined Tycho Brahe, for which I settled in Prague, for which I have devoted the best part of my life to astronomical contemplations, at length I have brought to light, and recognized its truth beyond my most sanguine expectations. It is not eighteen months since I got the first glimpse of light, three months since the dawn, very few days since the unveiled sun, most admirable to gaze upon, burst upon me. Nothing holds me. I will indulge my sacred fury. I will triumph over mankind by the honest confession that I have stolen the golden vases of the Egyptians to build up a tabernacle for my god far away from the confines of Egypt. If you forgive me, I rejoice. If you are angry, I can bear it. The die is cast, the book is written, to be read either now or by posterity. I care not which. It may well wait a century for a reader, as God has waited six thousand years for an observer. Soon after this great work, his third book appeared. It was an epitome of the Copernican theory, a clear and fairly popular exposition of it, which had the honor of being at once suppressed and placed on the list of books prohibited by the Church, side by side with the work of Copernicus himself, De Revolutionibus Orbium Celestium. This honor, however, gave Kepler no satisfaction. It rather occasioned him dismay, especially as it deprived him of all pecuniary benefit and made it almost impossible for him to get a publisher to undertake another book. Still, he worked on at the Rudolphine tables of Tycho and ultimately, with some small help from Vienna, completed them. But he could not get the means to print them. He applied to the court till he was sick of applying. They lay idle four years. At last he determined to pay for the type himself. What he paid it with, God knows, but he did pay it, and he did bring out the tables, and so was faithful to the behest of his friend. This great publication marks an era in astronomy. They were the first really accurate tables which navigators ever possessed. They were the precursors of our present nautical almanac. After this, the Grand Duke of Tuscany sent Kepler a golden chain, which is interesting inasmuch 
as it must really have come from Galileo, who was in high favor at the Italian court at this time. Once more Kepler made a determined attempt to get his arrears of salary paid and rescue himself and family from their bitter poverty. He traveled to Prague on purpose, attended the imperial meeting, and pleaded his own cause, but it was all fruitless, and exhausted by the journey, weakened by overstudy, and disheartened by the failure, he caught a fever and died in his fifty-ninth year. His body was buried at Ratisbon, and a century ago a proposal was made to erect a marble monument to his memory, but nothing was done. It matters little one way or the other whether Germany, having almost refused him bread during his life, should, a century and a half after his death, offer him a stone. The contiguity of the lives of Kepler and Tycho furnishes a moral too obvious to need pointing out. What Kepler might have achieved, had he been relieved of those ghastly struggles for subsistence, one cannot tell, but this much is clear, that had Tycho been subjected to the same misfortune, instead of being born rich and being assisted by generous and enlightened patrons, he could have accomplished very little. His instruments, his observatory, the tools by which he did his work, would have been impossible for him. Frederick and Sophia of Denmark, and Rudolf of Bohemia, are therefore to be remembered as co-workers with him. Kepler, with his ill health and inferior physical energy, was unable to command the like advantages. Much, nevertheless, he did. More one cannot but feel he might have done had he been properly helped. Besides, the world would have been free from the reproach of accepting the fruits of his bright genius while condemning the worker to a life of misery, relieved only by the beauty of his own thoughts and the ecstasy awakened in him by the harmony and precision of nature. Concerning the method of Kepler, the mode by which he made his discoveries, we must remember that he gives us an account of all the steps, unsuccessful as well as successful, by which he traveled. He maps out his route like a traveler. In fact, he compares himself to Columbus or Magellan, voyaging into unknown lands and recording his wandering route. This being remembered, it will be found that his methods do not differ so utterly from those used by other philosophers in like case. His imagination was perhaps more luxuriant and was allowed freer play than most men's, but it was nevertheless always controlled by rigid examination and comparison of hypotheses with fact. Brewster says of him, Ardent, restless, burning to distinguish himself by discovery, he attempted everything, and once having obtained a glimpse of a clue, no labor was too hard in following or verifying it. A few of his attempts succeeded, a multitude failed. Those which failed seem to us now fanciful. Those which succeeded appear to us sublime. 
but his methods were the same. When in search of what really existed, he sometimes found it. When in pursuit of a chimera, he could not but fail. But in either case, he displayed the same great qualities and that obstinate perseverance which must conquer all difficulties except those really insurmountable. To recognize what he did for astronomy, it is necessary for us now to consider some science still in its infancy. Astronomy is so clear and so thoroughly explored now that it is difficult to put oneself into a contemporary attitude. But take some other science still barely developed. Meteorology, for instance, the science of the weather, the succession of winds and rain, sunshine and frost, clouds and fog, is now very much in the condition of astronomy before Kepler. We have passed through the stage of ascribing atmospheric disturbances, thunderstorms, cyclones, earthquakes, and the like, to supernatural agency. We have had our Copernican era, not perhaps brought about by a single individual, but still achieved. Something of the laws of cyclone and anticyclone are known, and rude weather predictions across the Atlantic are roughly possible. Barometers and thermometers and anemometers, and all their tribe, represent the astronomical instruments in the island of Huon, and our numerous meteorological observations, with their continual record of events, represent the work of Tycho Brahe. Observation is heaped on observation. Tables are compiled. Volumes are filled with data. The hours of sunshine are recorded. The fall of rain. The moisture in the air. The kind of clouds. The temperature. Millions of facts. But where is the Kepler to study and brood over them? Where is the man to spend his life in evolving the beginnings of law and order from the midst of all this chaos? Perhaps, as a man, he may not come, but his era will come. Through this stage the science must pass, ere it is ready for the commanding intellect of a Newton. But what a work it will be for the man, whoever he be that undertakes it, a fearful, monotonous grind of calculation, hypothesis, hypothesis, calculation, a desperate and groping endeavor to reconcile theories with facts. A life of such labor, crowned by three brilliant discoveries, the world owes, and too late recognizes its obligation to the harshly treated German genius, Kepler. End of Lecture 3 Recording by Rick Rodstrom